0: You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. This morning we are continuing in our series of sermons looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Pastor Terry and other preachers have been working through this letter for some time now and if you have your Bible you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 9 this morning. And so, as we do, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, But like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of God to us this morning. Amen. Amen. This morning, as we look into the message of Ephesians chapter 6, and we look at these nine verses, I want us to consider how we are called to honor the Lord Jesus when we are at home, and how we are called to honor the Lord Jesus when we are at work. If you think about it, I don't know about you, but most of us spend a lot more time dealing with our kids and being with our family, doing household chores, plus add to that all your time outside the home at work. If you work a 9-to-5 job, Monday to Friday, you can add up all these hours of work outside the home, add up all your hours of work inside the home and all the chores you have, most of us spend a lot more time doing that kind of thing than having quiet time, reading our Bible, praying, right? And you don't have to be embarrassed about that. You don't have to feel guilty about that. That's just normal life. I don't know anybody who actually spends more time praying and reading their Bible than doing all the other practical things of life. Because that's the way God has designed us as humans Of course, prayer is important. Having fellowship with God in prayer and in his word is a very vital thing that should be part of everyday life for us. But in terms of that intentional time of prayer and meditation and reflection and reading and even having worship like this together as a church family, we practically cannot do these things 24 hours a day, seven days a week. God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. He set a pattern even in the beginning that he expected people would be working. For six days you shall work. And of course there would be a day of rest too. But even by the nature of creation and throughout scripture, it's expected that we spend a lot of time working, doing practical things, and raising our kids and doing chores and doing all kinds of things that would seem mundane, right? What we are called to see here in Ephesians chapter 6 is that these mundane, ordinary chores and responsibilities have a great purpose, and everything that we are to do, we are to do it with a heart that is seeking the Lord. And so even if we're not consciously, specifically praying every moment of every day, we are to live every day in the presence of the Lord, before the Lord, knowing that the Lord is with us no matter where we are and what we're doing. So this is what this passage is about. It's about honoring the Lord in all of those ordinary moments of life, honoring the Lord in all those ordinary responsibilities. And this message is important for a number of reasons. I just want to clarify this message today is not just about how you can have a happy family and how you can have a happy workplace, a happy career. I'm sure you can find millions of books about that kind of topic. But this passage is not primarily about how to be happy in your family and how to be happy at work and successful in your career. I do believe that if we live before the Lord and we give everything and all of our responsibilities, as serving the Lord, then we will find happiness in the Lord, but that's not the primary point. The primary point is about honoring Jesus. And so this message is important because of the honor of the Lord Jesus, which is at stake. The way that you take care of your family, and the way that you relate to your family members, the honor of Jesus is at stake there. The way that you go to your job, whatever ordinary job you have, or whatever extraordinary job you might have, the way that you... Go about your business. The honor of Jesus is at stake there. Ephesians chapter 1, if you turn with me and remember Ephesians chapter 1 from some time ago, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's not just a moral teacher, a good rabbi, a good instructor who's given us rules to follow, but he is the one who is. Been raised from the dead, and He is now seated, it says, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. Jesus is the one who has honor over all things. Jesus is the one who is supreme, the authority over all things. And so, this is why it matters that we go to work as serving the Lord, because He is the Lord. This is why it matters that we respect our family relationships with an eye towards the Lord, because Jesus cares about that, because Jesus is over that. Jesus is the one who is supreme over all of these things, over our family relationships and over our work environment. And so this is important to see that it's not just about how do I feel about my work, how do I feel about my family, but what matters is that we would honor the Lord in whatever condition our family is, in whatever condition our work is, and in all things we are to seek the honor of Jesus, knowing his honor is at stake. His reputation is bound to your reputation if you're a believer. If people at your workplace know that you're a Christian and they see you living in an unchrist-like way, well, what does that say to the honor of Jesus, right? If your neighbors can see you and your friends and your family can see you in the way that you treat your family relationships in a way that's not honoring to Christ, well, what does that say of Christ? So we are to care, most importantly, most of all, not just about how do we feel, but what is the reputation of Christ? What is the honor of Christ that I'm living for? Secondly, this message is important because, as Christians even, we can often be discouraged on one hand or else, Worldly and prideful, on the other hand, if we forget about Jesus and his honor in relation to our responsibilities. You see, if you just compartmentalize your spiritual life and you think, okay, me following Jesus means go to church, read my Bible, pray, I'm doing that, you know, find some disciplines that you can do and enjoy your spiritual disciplines, and that's following Jesus, and then you separate that from what you do in your nine-to-five job, one of the possibilities is that you just become worldly with that. You become prideful. You become obsessed about this world over here and this other world over here that's detached. And you can become just like the world and have a, a Christian image that shows that, well, you're a godly person when you go to church, but in terms of where your heart is really at, it's it's unaffected. You're still as covetous, as a non-christian. You're still as caring about worldly things as a non-christian. And Jesus is not sanctifying so much of your life if you, if you separate and compartmentalize like that. On the other hand, I think a lot of well-meaning Christians become discouraged if they sort of compartmentalize their spiritual life from the rest of life. You become discouraged because you think the real spiritual people are those who are going on missions all the time, right? The real spiritual people are those who are writing Christian books and they're the popular speakers or well-known people who are doing things publicly for the Lord. And here's me, well, I never could attain to that. Here's me, I could never attain to these, you know, um, famous and publicly recognized Christian things. And it can become a discouragement or you can look at your family and think, well, my family has all these problems and all these deficiencies and it's just so ordinary, it's so mundane. And I guess I just don't have anything really great to bring before the Lord. And it can become a discouraging thing. You start measuring yourself by other people around you instead of looking at your life as lived before the Lord. It can become a very discouraging thing for Christians if if we do not see how much Jesus himself values just the ordinary family relationships that you have, and just the ordinary work that you do. The Lord Jesus values that, and that should be an encouragement to you, and at the same time, a sanctifying influence to you. And furthermore, as we look at this message and we spend some time in these verses today, I want us to see that the goodness of Jesus is reflected to us here. The goodness of Jesus is reflected as we consider how he is the master over all things. If you look with me at Ephesians 6, so many times the Lordship of Christ is mentioned in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Not just obey your parents, but do this in the Lord, right? In verse 4, it talks about raising our children in the training and instruction of the Lord. In verse 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, it talks about not just serving before men, as servants of Christ, in verse 9 again, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. The lordship of Christ is emphasized throughout these words. And so God calls us today to recognize that Jesus is Lord over your family relationships, Jesus is Lord over your working relationships, and he is such a good Lord, a a Lord who rewards his people a Lord who blesses his people. And when we see this as the main point of the passage, then turning our eyes to the Lord, then and this teaching of Scripture not only has just practical value for our everyday lives, but it, it has a great value for growing our sense of trust and love for the Lord, which is, which is the primary thing. And so let's look at this section of Scripture here today. Let's look at this section of scripture and consider how does God call us to honor Jesus as Lord in our family life and in our working relationships. There are two general points that we can see, two general points that I want to draw out for us today to consider. And the first is that we are called to honor Jesus by obeying and honoring people who are in authority over us. We are called to honor Jesus by obeying and honoring people who are in authority over us. Now, there are two groups of people in this passage today that that are mentioned, that are commanded to obey. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then it says in verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters. And so we're called to think about this that obedience is a virtue. Obedience to those who are in authority over you is, is God's will. This is the way that a spirit-filled Christian lives. This is what, the way that a wise, obedient, godly Christian lives. It, it's by obeying those who are in authority over you. Now, of course, there are these two groups of people, uh, children and slaves, are different, right? Right? Slaves in the first century were different than children. They might live under the same roof, if you think of the first century, 2,000 years ago. A typical household that was wealthy enough, at least, would have a father and a mother, and however many children, and then they would have hired servants, or they would have slaves who would work for the family. They might work out in the field, they might work in the household, doing the dishes, so to speak, doing the chores cooking food, teaching the children even. Slavery was not what we tend to think of it in terms of just recent uh, history of, of all the racial uh, kind of slavery, the, uh, the terrible abuse of slavery that has been made known in recent history. It still wasn't a beautiful, wonderful thing. But slaves in the Roman Empire had many different positions. Teachers would be slaves... Doctors would be slaves. Educators, uh, orators would be slaves. Ha- you could have a slave that was educated to take care of your finances, be your bookkeeper, right? And all these roles would be fulfilled by slaves, and they would be working together in a household. And, and the scripture recognizes that there are different kinds of relationships in life. But the principle of obedience is vital. And I know that we live in a culture that doesn't like such words, obedience, right? We live in a a Western culture. We pride ourselves in individualism and self-expression. If you pay careful attention to what people value in our modern world, it's about expressing yourself, being yourself. And of course, there's some value in that. But we're to see that obedience is an important principle that all cultures, all people need to learn as well. And all of us at every age need to learn as well. Whether you think of children, little children, under their parents' leadership, or whether you think of grown adults who can uh, have specialized skills in the workplace, this principle of obedience is applied to a broad range of people and to broad ranges of different ages of people, too. And what is obedience, then? Obedience is a matter of letting your will Submit to the will of another. Let your decision be to follow the decision of another. And so what God is saying to you today, if you're a younger person, you're still living with your mom and dad today, uh, this is the kind of category that Paul is thinking of when he talks about children and parents. Children, if you're young or even if you're getting older, this principle of letting your heart follow the will of your mom and your dad that is an important part of growing in christ-likeness and this is about honoring jesus then obey your parents in the lord for this is right notice then it's interesting paul's talking and he's he's writing this letter to the church in ephesus and he's expecting that there would be children present he's expecting that this letter to the ephesians would be read to the church and the children would hear and they would know that they have a responsibility to obey their parents in the Lord. And by saying that in the Lord, he's expecting that children can be Christians, yes. Children can be valued members of the Christian community. Children can be those who give Christian obedience, who obey in the Lord. Not just giving a human obedience, not just a constrained obedience like the world might give, but a Christian obedience in the Lord. And that is to say if you're someone who's living with your mom and dad and you think about the rules that they set for you and they say well this is a cur- curfew and and you know these are decisions that we've made that w- y- these are house rules you're to honor those guidelines you're to honor those principles as as a matter of respecting the Lord's provision to you. Parents are God's provision to you. And so he goes on to say in verse 2, honor your mother and father. It's not just about giving an outward obedience, but it's a Christian obedience in the Lord, and that means honoring, having a sense that your parents are gifts to you. Your mom and dad, in a very real sense, are the first gifts that God has given to you. God used your mom and dad literally to bring you into the world, and so they are... Literally, a gift to you, and you're to honor them for that. And that principle of honoring, even though the relationship changes, of course, as you get older, you grow into your teenage years, you grow into your 20s, you, you get married, you have kids. You get older, you become a parent yourself, you become a grandparent one day, Well, and, you're great, and then your parents become great-grandparents. You, you can think of the timeline of your life. Your relationship with your mom and dad is going to change, right? They're not always going to have house rules for you, I hope. They're not always going to tell you, okay, no internet after this time of day or no TV on this day. They're not going to always have rules like that, I hope. If they're good parents, they won't be overbearing like that. But the principle, that that specific command which was given originally to children who are under their parents' household, it's grounded in a more general principle of honoring, which is a commandment with a promise, he says. And so this is the kind of obedience that God calls us to, especially speaking to you who are still living with your mom and dad. It's to know that God has given you your mom and dad. God has given you your parents, whoever is responsible for you. God has given you responsible adults in your life. And they are a gift to you. And you're calling then whether they're your natural parents, whether they're your adopted parents, whatever way that God has brought these parents into your life, God calls you now to honor them, to look at them with a sense of honor, with a sense of thanksgiving, and to know that this is the way that you honor the Lord Jesus then, in the Lord, that you would obey them, that you would honor them. And again, the obedience then, as he says, this is a commandment with a promise it's very interesting. He doesn't just say, children, obey your parents in the Lord so that they don't punish you. But he, he's very positive in speaking to children. Very positive. He says, this is a commandment of the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the earth, that you may enjoy long life in the earth. This is a general promise we need to understand. We know that this is not a, a promise that suggests that uh, every good Christian child will live till he or she is 80 years old. We know that you don't take the scripture like that. You look at the whole of scripture, you know that there are children who are godly and some of them are martyred for Christ at a young age, right? We know that we don't take the scripture and, and just take one verse like this and, and apply it to mean, uh, you know, literally every single individual child will will live to whatever age and never have any problems. But, but what this promises is, is an encouragement to children that This is God's normal way of blessing his people. As a principle, children who obey their parents find blessing compared to the category of children who are disobedient and rebellious. You can think of Romans chapter 1, one of the signs of an ungodly society. One of the signs of a society in a world that is under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed against heaven against all this kind of ungodliness that you read about in Romans chapter 1, one of the signs of God's wrath and Him giving people over to destruction is this disobedience to parents, having a rebelliousness against mom and dad. That category of people who live in rebellion and animosity against their mom and dad, their life doesn't end up as well as when A child learns to obey and honor and cherish their parents. There's a kind of proverb I've heard recently that says, for the first 30 years of our lives, for the first 30 years of our lives, we are forming our character. We're forming our character in the first 30 years of our life, and then for the next 30 years, our character is forming us. Do you understand what this saying is referring to? It's that in the early years of life, even the first 30 years, you're changing a lot. You're going to change a lot more in your first 30 years than in your next 30 years in terms of all the things you learn, especially the first 10 years, but even after that, until you're 20, and then even until you're 30. You are forming your character. You're making decisions that will influence your whole life. In your first 30 years of life, you're making decisions about how you relate to your mom and dad, how you relate to your church, how you relate to other people who are older than you. You're making decisions, and those decisions that you make will form your character. But as life goes on, as life goes on, your character in many ways forms you. And that's not to say that people can't change later on in life. It's just a general saying, but there's value in that. And I think that that gives us insight into what Paul is talking about here and what the Scripture speaks of that the childhood years, the years that you're under your mom and dad's roof, those years you're called to see as very important and the decisions you make and the relationship you have with your mom and dad will influence the rest of your life in a very profound way. And the way that you work out a proper, healthy, godly relationship with those who are older than you will have a, a lot to say about where you end up 30 years from now. And so if you want to see the scripture properly, you've got to see that the Lord Jesus is standing behind this commandment. Don't look at this commandment and say, oh, obedience, I don't like that word. Respect, honor, I don't like those words. It's, it's infringing on my self-expression. Don't think like that. Know that the Lord Jesus stands behind these commandments and he wants what is for your good. He wants you to have a life in which things go well for you and that you live, however long you live, with a sense of confidence in him, knowing that your life is in his hands and he is your Lord and he is a good Lord. Indeed, this is part of learning Christ's likeness Think of Jesus himself. When he came to this world, did he come and just become incarnate as a full-grown 30-year-old man? Don't, I'm not going to answer questions if that was, it would be possible or not. I'm not going to get into that. But he didn't do that, right? He didn't just come incarnate as a 30-year-old man. He was born as a babe. He was born and he was raised under the supervision of Joseph and Mary. He was a child who grew from his days in Bethlehem, from his days in Nazareth. Jesus learned obedience as a son. As we read in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, if you think of that, you can note that down. Um, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 says, Though he was a son, Jesus learnt obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus was a son, the son of God eternally, and he became a son of Mary and Joseph. And he learned obedience. He learnt, in terms of experientially learning, what it is to submit To follow the rules of his family. To go to bed when they say, go to bed. To eat what they gave him. To follow all of the household rules that Joseph and Mary would have given to him, right? And this was part of his work as our Savior, that he would fulfill the commandment. And so when we look at the commandment in the light of Christ, we're not just going to look at this commandment and say, Obey, obey these rules just because you have to. But know that Jesus Himself stands behind these commandments, and He wants what is for our good. He promises blessing for obedience, and He Himself is the one who has obeyed perfectly. He is the one who submitted Himself to all the rules and regulations, even of the Old Testament law, ever since His infancy, growing up in obscurity. He is the one who knows obedience. He is the one who has learned obedience. And so again, this application is given to not just children living with mom and dad, but to slaves, to those who are adults. And all of us have application to this. Um, This has application to all of us, I should say. Because, you see, the apostle isn't just speaking to children. He's speaking to grown men and women when he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with us. We don't have slavery. It's Canada, right? Wake up. It's... We don't have a slave system, so these commandments have nothing to do with us, right? No. You see, you might not be a slave 24-7 like the Roman slaves 2,000 years ago, but if you work at all for anyone else, if you work for a company, if you're a teacher, if you are someone who does accounting or business in any kind of sense... Any job that you do, you're hiring yourself out to someone, right? And if you're honest, you're there because they're paying you money to be there. It's an economic relationship. And wherever we find ourselves under the authority of someone else, under the authority of a company, under the authority of particular management, we're to know that this is our calling, to continue to learn obedience, to line our hearts and our minds up with what's the policy of the the group that we're working for. Now, of course, what does that mean? It means a lot of, it looks like a lot of different things in different workplaces. You might work in an environment where you have a lot of freedom and the only rules you have to follow are just common sense. Well, great, praise God for that. You know, the Apostle Paul was not encouraging hard economic conditions. He says in 1 Corinthians, if, if you have the opportunity to become a free man, take it. If you have the opportunity not to be enslaved, well, take that opportunity. But at the same time, you need to realize, as long as you live in this world, you have to be obedient to someone. You have to be lining yourself up to someone else. And so as long as they're not telling you to sin, commanding you to sin, then your heart should be seeking to line up with what is the leadership of of that group. Now, of course, that raises all kinds of questions, and you know how to to deal with all kinds of questions, talk to Pastor Terry next week. right? If, if you have questions of just ethical concerns, you think of teachers nowadays and there are certain policies that are you know, enforced upon the uh, workplace where teachers work and they might have ethical you know, questions. How do I implement this policy as a Christian? How do I implement this policy as a, as a nurse or as a doctor in certain situations? There's, there's all kinds of questions, but Paul is speaking about just the general principle of being an obedient worker, whatever your job is, to be one who's not just trying to just cause a disturbance at work, always trying to have your own way, always just saying, hey, I think we should do it this way. I think we should do it that way. I think we should change this policy. I think we should change that policy. There's a place and a way to make change in your workplace. But, but your heart should not be bent on having your own way. Your heart should not be bent on just forcing other people into your Schedule and forcing other people into your approach. What is behind all of these commands and what the Apostle Paul was concerned for was Christ-likeness. The Christ would be fully formed in us. And if Christ-likeness is our goal, then we should see that surrendering to those who are in authority over us is Is a starting point. It's all throughout the scriptures. You can find this kind of instruction. Romans chapter 13, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. You can find lots of examples where this is not just an isolated passage. It's the calls for our uh, humility and our obedience. And so, again, what is the motivation behind this commandment to obey your worker, uh, your boss, or your workplace rules? It's not just obey so that you don't get in trouble. Obeyed so that you would just silence your self-expression. He's not not, uh, suggesting that having uh, your opinions is a bad thing. But the encouragement is given, again, with a more specific promise. If there's a general promise to children that, generally speaking, things will go well with you in this world if you obey your parents, then there is an even greater promise to all people. No matter what you do, If you serve as unto the Lord, as he goes on to say, he will reward you. Look with me at Ephesians 6. He says in verse 5: Slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with those qualities again, as as if you would have respect and a sense of godly fear of the Lord. Show that to your earthly masters with sincerity of heart, as just as you would obey Christ, right? What's the motive? It's because you see your worker, not just, you see your employer, I should say. You see your boss, your manager, not just as some guy or some lady in charge, but you treat them as you would treat Jesus, as serving Christ. Again, in verse 6, obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you. I mean, non-Christians do that, right? Non-Christians in the workplace will say, oh, make sure you remember This policy, oh, make sure you don't forget what the boss said, right? But that's not the kind of obedience that Paul's talking about. he says, not only to win their favor when their eyes are on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. So there's this Christ-centeredness that we need to understand in our daily work. Christ-centeredness of knowing that, yeah, I'm going to work today, and yeah, this is my manager, this is my boss, this is, these are the rules of the company, this is what I need to do today, but I'm not just doing it because so-and-so says so and just so that I can get my paycheck, but I'm doing this as if I'm serving Jesus. If you're working on an assembly line and you're putting together furniture, you're not just saying, okay, i got to make sure I get you know, my quota, i got to get a hundred of these things done in the next hour just because I don't want to get in trouble. But no, think, I want to put together this furniture because this is what Jesus wants me to do. And I want to please him. If you're mopping the floors, if you're cleaning a garage, you're doing some kind of practical work, you're not just thinking, okay, I got to get this done so that I get my paycheck at the end of the week. You should go into your workplace and Pray for such a spirit that you would say, I want to do this work. I want to mop these floors as serving Christ because I know the presence of Christ is with me and he is honored when I do a good job. This should be your motivation. And again, the motive is then in verse 8, because, this is why, because, verse 8, you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. You see, again, just as with children, the Lord Jesus stands behind this commandment. That whatever you do, he promises. Whatever you do that is good. Whatever good he does, the Lord will reward. And this is not talking about just an earthly general principle, but this is alluding to the final day. Jesus is coming in his glory. Jesus was not just a teacher who gave instructions of how to live and how to follow He is the Lord who died for sinners, He rose again, and He promised that He will come again. You can think of so many verses in Matthew, for example. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, it says, The Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what He has done. That's what Jesus Himself said before he went to the cross and before he rose again he said he will come again and he will reward on that day each one and jesus said even for the small things jesus himself on earth taught this principle he said in matthew chapter 10 verse 42 in matthew 10:42 and if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple truly i tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward what a promise You see, Jesus himself was teaching what Paul is now teaching in Ephesians 6 and what God is speaking to you today. This same Jesus who died for your sins, who rose again, he is alive right now, he will come again one day, and he will pour rewards upon you. There's a day of reward, there's a day of glory that he is coming with the angels. And even the little things like giving a cold cup of water to a thirsty disciple, he doesn't forget that. Even the little things you do, yes, with church, doing church programs, you know, volunteering yourself for church programs, that's good. He will remember those little things and say, great is your reward. He will remember the little things you do, teaching Sunday school, doing all these, yes, church activities, sure. But not just those things at church. He will remember The cup of water you gave a neighbor on a hot day. He will remember the little things you did when you were a slave, mopping the floors, taking out the trash. He will remember those things, too. Every good thing he will reward. What a master. Your job might have benefits. Your job in your workplace might have, you know, rewards for you, incentives. But it's very limited and temporary. Your parents, as long as you live with your mom and dad, as long as they live, they might have incentives for you. They might have rewards for you. But that is not the focus of the Scripture. The focus of our hearts is to know that there is one Lord, one Master, who has been raised from the dead, and He is paying attention to everything you do. He's paying attention to your family relationships and how you respect others in your family. He's paying attention to the way you go to work and you do your ordinary work. And as verse 8 says, what a promise. Whatever good you do, He will reward now, when we think of rewards, just briefly as a side, this reward isn't just to give you honor. It's a God-centered reward. And the greatest reward a servant of God can have is to have an honorable position of service. When Jesus spoke of the last day, he spoke of some getting five cities, some getting two cities, and so on. And the idea, and it's, of course, spoken in metaphors, when he talks about the end, he's talking about giving his servants positions of honorable responsibility so that you'll be serving Jesus forever with responsibilities. And what does that look like? We have to wait and see. We have to wait and see what that looks like. But God wants us to know this much, that there is a glorious reward, better than anything you could ever attain for yourself here on earth. There's a glorious reward. And how can this be that there is such a reward How can there be that there's such rewards promised to believers? Aren't we justified by faith alone? What does this mean? Well, we need to remember that nothing you can do in this world can earn heaven. Nothing you can do in this world, no matter how hard you work, your job, no matter how much you try to obey your parents and keep all the rules around you, you can't earn a thing But what Jesus has done as a son, as the son of God, he has come and given perfect obedience. He has entered and established a new covenant in which his obedience counts for us. His righteousness is imputed to us by faith. And by faith then as we obey, it's not that we are meriting extra good things for ourselves, but we are living in Christ. We're living by his spirit. And the rewards then that, Scripture is speaking of are gracious rewards. They're gift rewards. It's not that you deserve these rewards. There's nothing that you could do to possibly earn eternal life with God. There's nothing you could possibly do as hard as you try to be good and righteous. There's nothing you could do to earn rewards with God except that Christ has come. And He, by His perfect obedience, has become the source of eternal salvation, as we read in Hebrews 5, verse 9. By His obedience... He has become the source of eternal salvation. And by his obedience then, God rewards the good things we do, even though we do it imperfectly. You might say, well, I don't, I'm don't. i not an outstanding worker. I'm not an outstanding uh, son or daughter. I have a whole track record of mixed obedience at best. How is it that God could promise rewards to someone like me, who's so imperfect? Well, it's because God in, in his kindness overlooks your sin and even overlooks the imperfections of your obedience but, but obedience that comes from faith is rewarded then as the overflow of Christ's grace and so even as we think about these encouragements and these promises let us know that Jesus stands behind all these commandments as one who promises reward and blessing a reward and blessing that he himself purchased and a reward and blessing that he himself has earned by his perfect obedience to give to us if we simply follow him Having said all of that, I've emphasized what the scripture has emphasized. Most of these verses speak to children and to slaves. And and if you notice, again, spoken in a very positive positive, encouraging way to children and to slaves. But there are two verses here that then speak to those of us who are in positions of authority. There's a verse given to fathers and there's a verse given to masters. And so let's look at this before we close. You see... Paul speaks in verse 4, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, to fathers. Fathers, he says, Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You see, whereas children and workers need encouragement about God's blessing and kindness, those who are in authority, here in verse 4, need a caution. They need a caution. It's not that he's saying now, fathers, take charge of your children. But he's saying cautiously, don't exasperate them. Don't um, push them to become angry children. Don't provoke them to wrath, some translations say. And so, you see, on one hand, the scripture that we read today emphasizes obedience and, and being honoring towards those who are in authority, and being respectful to those who are in authority. On the other hand, to those of us, and all of us to some degree will have this, to all of us who have a position of authority, in turn we are to be cautious with that. We are to be gentle. We are to be gracious in our use of authority. And this is how the gospel changes power struggle dynamics. This is how the gospel changes the workplace Environment that is a power struggle. This is how the gospel changes that power struggle between a father and mother and their children. It's not just by giving rules, but it's about giving these Christ centered commandments, and in this case, to fathers to not exasperate, don't provoke your children to wrath. What does that mean? Well, it obviously means be considerate of them. A good mother, a good father takes care to think, are my rules fair? Are my rules that I set for my children too much for them? And as parents, and I believe that we have many parents here, and grandparents likewise, think about this, how you treat your grandchildren. Um, Are you leading those who are under your care in a way that is Christ-like, in a way that is gracious, in a way that's sensitive to their limitations. This is something for us to dwell upon, and of course it really deserves much more attention than we can give today, but do not exasperate your children. This gives a sense of, of being considerate of them. And you know, for some people, they might realize, that you have three kids maybe in your family, and kid number one, no problems, right? If they ever get out of line, you know what to do, and okay, no more of that. Child number two comes along, they're a little different, but it's okay. Child number three comes along, and then suddenly, whoa, I'm doing the same thing, and it's craziness. What you need to learn as a parent is that your children are different. They'll have different personalities. They'll have different um, aptitudes and different ways of learning things, And, and this verse really covers that and brings into consideration that we need to be considerate. We need to be... Parents who don't just rule over our authority just in an iron-fisted way, but we don't exasperate our children. That is God's will, but rather raise them. And that word, when it says raise them or bring them up, it has to do with nurturing them. It's the same word used in Ephesians 5, verse 29, about how we would nurture our body and cherish it. And that's how we are to treat our children then, nourishing them, raising them, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And discipline has to do with the will of the child. And instruction has to do with the mind of the child. If we're to be Christian parents, then we're not just thinking about the rules and the outward behavior. The scripture is calling us to raise them yes with discipline and instruction. Working with their will and their mind. Teaching them the way of Christ. And it is the discipline and instruction of the Lord that covers all of this. Knowing that we are instruments of God. The way that you're children look at you will influence the way that they look at Christ. What a responsibility, what a serious responsibility we have, and, and we all know that. I don't need to make anybody feel guilty about that. It's very easy for us to feel guilty when we think of how far we, sh- we fall short of being as Christ to our children. But again, the Scripture encourages us that we can be as instruments of Christ. We can give them the same kind of leadership that Christ gives to us. And again, to masters, it says, Do not threaten them. Treat them in the same way. Treat them with respect. And do not threaten them. A godly Christian parent, a godly Christian leader of any kind is not one that just relies on threats and rules, but is one who is like Christ, seeking to serve in the way of the Lord, in the discipline of the Lord, in the instruction of the Lord. And so, again... We know that parents will be rewarded just as children are promised reward, just as slaves are promised reward, leaders are promised reward as well, but we need to humble ourselves then because, you see, the encouragement of Scripture is given even to the smallest of tasks, even to the smallest of our works. And so... This passage calls us to reorient ourselves. A a Christian master in the first century reading this would not think, hey, i got to become a a more powerful master if I want to honor Christ. I need to extend my kingdom. I need to get more slaves. I need to get more people under my control. No, a Christian master reading this in the first century would not think that way. they think, wow, I have a responsibility to take care of my servants under me without threatening. How do I do that? I don't want too many people under my authority that I can't handle. Again, Christian parents will read this and not think that their children exist for them, but they exist for their children, and so we want to do everything we can to care for our children, knowing that we're not in any higher point of privilege. It is a privilege to be a parent. It is a privilege to be whatever God gives you to be, but it's not that you have then some higher privilege than somebody else who doesn't have those things in your life. There is no favoritism with God. The scripture ends with that. There is no favoritism with God. God will reward each one according to what he has given you to do. And so, when you take this scripture to heart today, I pray that you will see that such a gracious Lord Jesus gives you these instructions. Such a gracious Lord exists in heaven who will reward your obedience. Yes, in part, in this world, you can see the blessings of God, but in that day when he comes in his glory you will see this gracious Lord. And and the attitude of your heart then should be, Lord, since you are such a servant, since you are such a Lord who has become a servant for me, who has become a slave for me, how can I now give myself to you to be your bondservant? Indeed, as we come to the Lord's Supper today, as we prepare hearts for the Lord's Supper, let us know that as often as we partake of the bread and the cup today, we're reminded that this Lord who is over all things, over all your relationships, this Lord who is over all your work and over your career, this Lord has become a slave. He has become the lowliest one. He has become the one who gave himself, even his body and his blood, he shed so that we would enter his family, so that we would not just be slaves, but that we would be children of God. What a blessing today to come not only to know what is God's will for how we should live but to know that his grace is declared here. His grace is declared that he is the master but he is the slave. He is the lowly one who has come that we would be his family members. And So as Doug comes forward let us pray and let us thank him for his word. Father, we thank you for giving us your word that you show us how we should live in obedience and in honoring those who are in authority over us. We thank you also for your grace and kindness, for your promises, the blessings that you declare. We thank you, Father, that you have purchased these things for us through the blood of Christ now, remembered among us. Lord, help us to live even as our Savior who gave himself for us. In Jesus' name we pray.